and so it begins. Dylan knows its secrets. It's like nothing you've ever done after before. You make me want to be a better man. Hello everyone and welcome to Watching the Right Movies with the Rinkowski Brothers, a podcast for people that like mainstream movies but are looking to branch out their taste and don't know where to start. I'm Ben, this is my brother Nick. Hey Benny, how's it going? It's pretty good, and you know why I'm especially excited? We have a special guest today. We do. Hello. Uh, we have Will Tarbox with us here today. Uh, how long have you been friends with Nick, Will? Well, um, this being uh, 2020, that means that uh, Nick and I met each other That's uh, true. almost My exactly goodness. 30 wow. years That's ago true. in kindergarten. And uh, oh, I, would, I think it's hard to imagine wow. I'd be the movie fan... I am today without being friends with Will, whose house was, um, how to put this, more lax on what movies we could watch at a younger age than our, our fairly uh, narrowed, uh, I won't say repressive, but then I already said repressive, mother's uh, uh, view on what was appropriate for children. So a lot of my first uh, movie, going, movie watching experiences were over at Will's house including um, Raiders of the Lost Ark and Alien, uh, both of which are relevant to today's movie. Yes. Uh, it's really funny you said that because I was absolutely going to say, I, I was assuming the movie we were watching today, maybe you watched at Will's house, and I would remember Nick would always come over and say, I got to watch Aliens today. And I was like, dang it. Right. Uh, you, you always get to watch these movies at Will's house. I think I stayed over at least one time and we watched something. Uh, but it was just always Nick telling me about watching Terminator 2 at Will's. It's funny. It's funny you bring that up, Nick, because this this is something that comes up with um, with uh, my girlfriend a lot too. Is that uh, because my so my, my mom was a nurse when I was growing up, and she would work uh, third shift usually on the weekends, and so it was just my dad and uh, my sister and myself. And if there was a movie that my dad wanted to watch, um, he would just he would kind of conspiratorially say, conspiratorially say, "Okay, look, <laughs> I'm going to rent this movie." And you can watch it with me, but I swear to God, if you tell your mother that this happened while she was at work, I'm, right. I'm going to beat the living hell out of you. Uh, he didn't actually say that, but you know, you know, it was it was very much like this is something that I want to do. So since you're here, I guess you can watch it too. And absolutely, with Aliens, the the Terminators. Um, oddly, th- this this movie was not one of them, though. This this was a movie that I, I saw under very uh, not different circumstances, but. Um, Uncommon circumstances, at least for the time. Okay, well, let's talk about let's talk about what movie. So let's talk about the movie we're seeing, Nick. Well, it's Blade Runner uh, from nineteen ninety two or nineteen eighty six or nineteen ninety two or two thousand seven. Uh, the the much uh, recut and re edited and re released science fiction epic from Ridley Scott, director of Alien, starring Harrison Ford, director of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, pardon me, star of Raiders of the Lost Ark. I probably saw it in college or around there, in my 20s, was certainly aware of it, uh, but it doesn't, as we've been talking about Alien and Aliens, which we watched a bunch too, and The Terminators, it's an action movie, it's a sci-fi movie. We were all obsessed, the three of us, uh, with Star Wars when we were kids, but I I don't know what appeal this would have for, um, you know, uh, kids of that age when we were that um, that young, because uh, it is a it's a sci-fi movie, but there and there is action, um, but it's a it's a little more muted and a little more adult, um, and I don't mean that in the uh, it, it just it's it's a mature. Uh, uh, movie about a uh, police officer looking for escaped replicants, uh, human beings who have been manufactured by the Tyrell Company uh, and are uh, allegedly not allowed to be on Earth. They are used as slave labor um, on uh, off-world off colonies, and five or six of them have come back to Earth. Uh, a couple of them die, and the other four are at large. And Harrison Ford, our Inspector Deckard, is brought out of—is he brought out of retirement? It's not very clear. To to round him up. Yep, he he is a retired Blade Runner who is. Uh, they they are, um, you know, a detachment of the LAPD who is tasked with sort of wrangling um, the the replicants, and he has 
since retired until uh, your friend and mine, M. Emmett Walsh, uh, recruits him back Correct. into the fold. And he has to find them all, uh, falls in love with one of them, although not part of that group, I guess. Uh, and it, the, the movie centers on... Well, I think one of the things I want to talk about is that the, the movie feels like it's very meaningful and that there's a whole bunch of, you know, it's about life and the nature of existence and all that kind of thing. Uh, but it does sort of boil down to um, a cop looking for criminals. Yeah. Yes. And when, when did you see it first, Will? Well, so I, I, I remember this very distinctly. Going to, coming to school one day, um, and one of our classmates, I don't remember exactly which classmate it was, but they said that they had seen this movie over the weekend, and oh man, you gotta see it! It's so crazy, it's so weird, and there's boobs in it. Um, like that was the, that was this kid's mm-hmm. main selling point was the fact that there was a scene with exposed breasts in it, and then um, I, it, which is a big selling point in the sixth to eighth grade range. A- absolutely, this th- this was probably in sixth or seventh grade, so we were what. 11, 12, 13 years old. Um, and that was a yeah. very, you know, uh, exciting prospect. Um, she also has a snake. And, and I mean, not to mention there's a, there's a python just hanging out there. Um, what's, what's not to like? Right. Um, but then I remember being um, at, um, at a different uh, classmate's uh, home, uh, one of our classmates' homes, and their uh, parents, for whatever reason, had a Laserdisc player. And... They had uh, because laser discs are awesome, um, but one of the one of the thing one of the uh, laser discs that they had was the it was specifically the European theatrical cut. Um, which, wow! Yes, oh. uh, I don't know why they had that particular cut, um, and why they would then have that particular cut on uh, in in that particular format. Um, it's that 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 cut is um, is is one of the stranger cuts of the of all of the available cuts in that um, it it basically has everything from the original American theatrical cut with added violent images during the finale, like the the climactic uh, battle with Roy. Yeah. Uh, and it's got the voiceover, and it's uh, and it's got the it's got the ha- the theatrical happy ending. Um, it doesn't have the unicorn dream, um, but it does have right. those extra. The unicorn dream didn't come around till later editions. Until the the director's cut from uh, I believe that one ninety six or whatever. I, I I think the specific there are a couple different director's cuts from my. As much as I love this movie, I'm not as conversant in the in the different cuts. Yeah, the director's cut is 92, and then the final cut is 2007, because even the director's cut, like Ridley Scott, didn't actually finish it. Correct, that so was like, a studio. Officially, cut. the 2007 final cut. It, yeah, like officially, the 2007 version is the definitive yeah. version. I know, but that's what I watched this last time. I'm assuming that's what I watched too, because there was no voiceover, which seems to be the main. Uh, yes. main difference. Your version, Will, I would assume was the Criterion Edition. Yes. Which would have been released in America on a Laserdisc uh, in that in that yeah. time period, which Criterion now, you think of sort of art house or underseen movies, but at, at that time they did have a number of releases of big popular movies, uh, but just in different editions or, or foreign editions. Yeah. Interesting, and, and and I remember at the time just being really kind of, um, you know, I I was a huge Star Wars fan and I, a huge um, Indiana Jones fan, and I and I you know Harrison Ford was one of my guys, and seeing him in in this movie being just so, uh, I mean it's a it's a very different movie with like different you know narrative priorities or however you want to put it, but the character of Deckard is just he's kind of he's not passive in the movie, but he's you know he's getting thrown around a lot. He's um, sad. Um, he's just not the sort of uh, cock of the walk kind of Han Solo um, that I was expecting from it. And I remember that being um, at the time, anyway, really kind of not exciting, but just I would I, I liked seeing um, 
a hero that was a little more um, kind of back on his heels and, and, and figuring stuff out along with us as opposed to, um, you know, punching Nazis and uh, blowing up TIE fighters and stuff. He's a classic. Obviously, this yeah. movie is very influenced by film noir, uh, you know, a, a genre from the 40s about fatalism and, you know, long shadows that was influenced visually by the German expressionist movies of the 20s and 30s. Uh, and science fiction has been a loving home to that type of story uh, really since Blade Runner. Uh, and if you've seen a mo- great movie called Dark City, uh, there's another, there's a, a number of other noir science fiction movies. And you're right, Deckard is that is that very much uh, Philip Marlowe, uh, J.J. Geddes from Chinatown, another movie we've talked about on this on this podcast. Uh, he is sort of streetwise, but also a little naive, and is wandering into a world that. Uh, he's trying to figure out with the rest of us. I was pumping my fist when you said Dark City, Nick, by the way. I just wanted to say that. What's that? I was When, when you brought up Dark City, I was pumping my fist because that, that's... Wait, it's a great movie. Great movie, yeah. It's okay. But yeah, I, I don't... I mean, he doesn't really have many um, uh, memorable lines of dialogue. He is not... He's sort of acted upon more than the person acting... Uh, on the scenes. Interestingly, I know we've all seen, I'm sure you've seen these memes or or uh, blogs pointing out that Indiana Jones, at least in Raiders of the Lost Ark, doesn't influence what happens in the movie at all. I don't know if you've seen these, where if you take Indiana Jones out, everything that happens in the movie would still happen uh, because uh, Belloc would still steal the... Um, the the Ark, it would still take it to the wherever they are, Tunisia or wherever they open it, and they'd still get all their faces melted off. So it doesn't matter that uh, Indiana Jones, who you think of as a man of action. Anyway, he is in the middle of everything, but he it doesn't really feel like he's the master of the action. And I and I almost feel like that that aspect of it is kind of lends itself to the um, you know what was it was later proven to be true by the by the sequel by Blade Runner twenty forty nine, but. Um, you know, the, the sort of fan theorizing about whether or not uh, Deckard is himself a replicant. Right. Um, and his, his sort of um, passivity and almost like aloofness and yes. sort of um, pratfallishness almost. And, and even the way that um, Bryant and Gaff, the um, Emmett Walsh and Edward James almost characters uh, interact with him, they, they treat him like a child. Yeah. And it's, and, and I think that was part of the, part of the, one of the aspects of the film that led people to believe that, Oh, he's he's just as sort of, um, you know, uh, he looks like an adult, but he's he's just as infantile and and just as sort of, um, you know, uh, uh, intellectually stunted as as the other replicants are, and they just know that they have the one their one purpose. And Deckard is also um, having been retired from his job himself. Now he just you know, states himself with with alcohol and these these memories that were you know implanted in him that are kind of torturing him and you've hit on one of the I think one of the ongoing reasons this movie has remained a classic and a discussed flashpoint for movie lovers is its lack of clarity on not just that question but everything yeah. you said at the beginning this is a weird movie not just for sixth graders it's a weird weird movie Uh, And it's also difficult, and this is a fairly noir idea, to know exactly what's going on at any given moment or why. You know, I I don't mind telling you this. I've always kept this movie a little bit at arm's length because I don't react well to the plot. Uh, It has historically, every time I've watched it, felt a little bit like... uh, much ado about nothing or that a bunch of sound and fury signifying nothing and at the end i'm like what have i really learned here uh that was less the case this latest viewing which may be my fifth or sixth i don't know uh it pales in comparison to how many times you've seen it i know will um but it does create that mystery of who's who who's doing what when and why Uh, again i don't know and and that is enhanced by the fact that there are at least four relatively definitive versions or versions you can point to that that are your favorite and can be discussed 
Absolutely. I, I, I think that's absolutely true. Um, and and one, one of my favorite things about that sort of um, ambiguity with with the with the movie in and of itself, but also between its distinctive cuts is that that's all of the film, the, the novel. Um, yeah. Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep is is, you know, it's a it's a Philip K. Dick novel. So, of course, it's totally um, out of its mind. <laughs> But it's also pretty straightforward and follows a um, a linear narrative, whereas you know Ridley Scott is it's there are sequences of this movie that are um, purely expressionistic and you need to either play a lot of catch up in certain scenes or just kind of resign yourself to letting it wash over you. Um, and I think that um, there's a certain degree to which. There, so there's uh, there's a, a, a hum, he's a humorist and like a, a film writer. His name is David Reese, and um, he was uh, I heard him on a on a different podcast recently where he was talking about the um, the, the film Spirited Away, the yeah. Miyazaki yeah uh, film, um, and he he described um, he he made a statement where he said that um, you know great movies movies that uh, that that affect us movies that are seem to be more than the sum of their parts. Um, movies that can be classified as great um, are either puzzles or dreams. And I think mm. that the the enigmatic aspects of Blade Runner and the, you know, the different cuts um, for some people amount to um, an arrangement of pieces that need to be fit together in a certain way. And, 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 and I, and I get that it, for, for me and my love of this movie, I mean, I, you know this, Nick, but this this is probably my favorite movie. Um, okay. And it is because, for, for me, it is because it is so dreamlike. And um, I feel like you when you said that you keep it at arm's length, I, I really, um, I, I totally get what you mean, because it is, there are aspects of it that kind of seem even though I've seen it so many times, they, they still seem slightly out of my grasp. And yeah. if I try to overextend myself and, and, and decode everything, it's almost like I might, I'm afraid of finding myself left wanting, but if I can kind of sit back and, and let it wash over me and, and vibe with it, um, I'm, it just, it's, it's such a relaxing, even though it is so, you know, violent and strange and uh intense. at times intense. um but i just i i also it's it's a total comfort movie for me i i always just it's i it's like slipping into a warm bath for me even though that bath is also uh cold uh rain water <laughs> blood uh, full of like room temperature yeah. beer full of and and i don't know what the alchemy is ben can tell you i'm not against ambiguous movies uh, and i don't know why this one doesn't let why I've always gone adrift with it and stopped caring when a movie like Certified Copy, which we talked about a few weeks ago, uh, which is just as ambiguous, holds my attention. And a more apt comparison, The Big Sleep, a Humphrey Bogart, uh, uh, Lauren Bacall film noir, which also has a just a totally incomprehensible plot. Uh, doesn't ward me off. So I don't know why it is why it's that. Uh, why it doesn't work for me in this one. Um, but it, it, plot-wise, it doesn't. Although every time I see it, I think the other reason why it remains a fixture in, in movie going is that if, regardless of what's going on, just look at it. My goodness, this is one of the most distinctive-looking movies. For a movie that I, I, I'm not passionate about, I feel like I, if you give me a, a, a freeze frame of any any shot, any scene, it's easily recognizable. There's not a single simple routine setup or, uh, or, or image that hasn't been lovingly constructed either through the camera or through the set direction or the costume design. It is a full visual feast. Oh, yeah. Like, I feel like, we, Hard yeah, I feel like we've hit on the two... Like, I feel like in pop culture... There's two things people think of a bread runner, and the one is the visuals, and specifically the, the shot the, of the you know, woman in the advertising, ad and just the floating, you know, the people right. floating in this future. 
By future, of course, I mean last year, 2019, Los Angeles. Right. <laughs> uh, but right, right <laughs> yeah. the crowded city, by the way, it's also pretty weird watching it during a pandemic where we're supposed to be spaced out. And right. it's just eating from that, you know, like grabbing the noodles, like uh, right next to 15 Wash million your hands. <laughs> oh, yeah. People, people literally stacked on top of yeah. one another in the street. Yeah. Wash your hands, Decker. Right. Don't touch your yeah. face. <laughs> so, right. So like that, I mean, it's like, and that is so distinctive, like you said. And you, I feel like anything come after this is trying not to either try to purposely not be Blade Runner or just admits it. Hey, we're just going to be Blade Runner right now. Uh, and then I think the fact of is he is he replicant? Is he not? Is the guy supposed to be hunting the replicants? Actually, yeah. replicant. Which, and I feel like ever ever since Blade Runner, any movie that wants some kind of twist like that, you know, including The Sixth Sense, has something you know they're giving to Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. Uh, but of course, Blade Runner does it different than Sixth Sense in that you don't really know. Like you said, unless you, then, you never find out, unless no. you see the sequel. Uh, but I sure. now Ben may di- quibble with me on this. Regardless of what happens in Blade Runner twenty forty seven, I still think it's a valid discussion point. I, I think that has little bearing on what happens in Blade Runner. That may be a, a, a strange view, uh, but it's still worth. You know, I think the inclusion of the the unicorn dream. There's so many weird symbols from Rutger Hauer's dove to um, where does the dove come from? Where does the dove come from? That really bothered me. (laughs) (laughs) Like, there's pigeons, but there's no doves, man. It came from it came from a it came from a a John Woo uh, film set. He was busy filming in Hong Kong at the time. Uh, the origami pieces, what do they yeah. mean? What does it signify? What does that mean for Graf? Is he, does he have something to do with the memory implantation since he knows about the unicorn uh, as revealed at the end? Uh, and does that mean then that, uh, that Deckard is indeed a replicant? Uh, I don't think the answers of this, of, of each of those questions is less important uh, then the, the the question, you know, asking those questions and trying to really engage with the movie. But when I say it's distinctive, I mean even distinctive compared to other really great-looking science fiction movies. You know, the sets of the cities don't look the same of even 2001 or, you know, it, it just, I don't know what it is about it, but the like the flames at the beginning, the, the Tyrell Tower, uh, the way it's created is is... Totally unique. Yeah, there's no one better than Ridley and the Scott. Big exa- <laughs> yeah, the big exaggerated. And uh, Will, you'll have to help me out. Who's the special effects Turnbull? Who did the special effects? Um, I, off the top of my head, I don't know. Um, I'm sure it was. I you know, it's uh, the there's all kinds of matte paintings and and miniatures, obviously. But as a, as opposed to, uh, I'm sorry. Um, in terms of which. Uh, studio um yeah. did them i i don't know off the top of my head it's 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 kind of it's it's funny because is you know as much as i love this movie um those those aspects of it i i never really have dug into sort of the um some of the behind the scenes stuff the way that i that i do with other you know like with a star wars or with a um you know a, a 2001 um those the the kind of tentpole special effects um films um for whatever reason i just yeah i don't know yeah because um, i do think it is part of a full team effort i mean i do i it, it's i directors often get um uh, picked out for these sort of things but i don't think right. one person could possibly have created everything uh, in in relation to this i mean it's it's such a um, huge Undertaking Douglas Turnbull Trumbull was the the name I was looking for. Um, okay, my research yep. department, i.e., yep. me googling it while you were talking, yeah. will uh, have now <laughs> uh, found that out. But yeah, I think it, it, you've mentioned it. This um, uh, Ridley Scott is a, a a pretty noted visualist, regardless of who he's working with. Um, and did, did, did your and did so, your Google search turn up um, uh, Jean Girard? Um, AKA Mobius, because I believe no. he did some design work as well. I did. I, uh, well, now you're sending me off on a different. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. We're good. He was a French um, comic book artist and designer um, who, uh, he went by the name of Mobius, and I, he, he worked on a, um, on a magazine called Howling Metal. 
um, that was very uh, influential for sort of that um, late 70s, early 80s kind of uh, proto-cyberpunk um, aesthetic. Um, yeah, you know, with yeah, I'm looking at it now. Dripping and steam-powered stuff and uh, neon. Yeah, it's, like a, and... it's like a less happy Watchmen cartoon, uh, you know. Uh, yes, he was, he was involved. You're correct. Uh, okay, okay. I that 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 was one of the the names that I remember being uh, associated with the with the look of of this of this film. Yeah. And I I also I, mean, I mentioned it in passing, but I want to talk more about the costumes, which are are really great. I, what is it about the future in this in this mine that everyone has to cover their necks? I feel like everyone's got a big cowl neck or a, a you know huge um, uh, collars and stuff like that. Uh, from yeah, or down like from the, Sean Young to uh, Edward James Olmos. Yeah. I mean, the gown that um, that Rachel wears to uh, Deckard's apartment um, with yeah. just the, it's got like a huge hood built into it. She, right. know, she, she looks like she is standing inside of a sarcophagus. Yes. Um, it's so it's such a striking uh, profile. And it really helps. You know, you we mentioned Edward James Olmos. He is dominates my memory way more than he does the screenplay because he's only in two yeah. or three scenes. Uh, yeah, and, and, same and with most Tyrell. of his dialogue is in a fictional uh, language. Yes. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, he, he, he uh, along with the scriptwriter, he developed, um, they call it city speak, and it's sort of a hybrid because Edward James almost himself um, is a, uh, you know, he speaks many languages, and so he sort of cobbled together this hybrid uh, future dialogue of, of the streets um, that uh, he just came to Scott and said, what if I just spoke in like broken, you know, Romanian when I go wow. get uh, Deckard at the noodle shop and Ridley Scott was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and even Tyrell, and I don't, I don't, I'm not sure of the actor's name, but he, again, I, I will never forget his face uh, you know, with those big TV screen glasses, uh, but he's yeah. barely in it. I believe he's in in a total of three scenes. Yeah, yeah, it's, three it's, scenes. It's it's, it's Rachel's uh, Voight comp examination, um, uh, just a random scene in the middle, and then the one where um, where he gets killed. Roy and and Pris, yeah. And even you mentioned Roy, also not in it. Now he is in it quite a bit in the last. 25 percent uh but he, there's not much build up to that you know you see yeah. that he's he's discussed uh, you see so he's set up he kind of gets paid that and that setup sort of pays off as you see him early as the leader of this this group of replicants uh, and then he's basically though the the lead actor in the final third of the movie yeah we should we should say the late great uh rutger hauer rutger is, hauer is correct Roy um, because quite I mean, bad. God, God, like no, just no one looks like this guy. Was was this his English language debut or no? He was in Nighthawks uh, the year previous. Okay. Um, for some reason, I thought that this was his uh, English language debut. Um, but no. I've never heard of the other movie, so why yeah. not? Sure. It's a, I mean, it's a, it's a crappy cop movie with Sylvester Stallone and Billy D. Williams in it, so it just, it doesn't exist. Sure. Right. Uh, and he, and I mean, you go to his IMDb page, and the first thing you see is that short cropped, uh, white blonde hair uh, from Blade mm-hmm. Runner. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's a, it, you know, it's just so it. You mentioned it's more than the sum of its parts. I don't. I can't go that far. Be only because it, 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 I've never connected with the story, but I understand why you mean that because the sum of its visual parts are remarkable. Yeah, and 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 for me, I think that that really does go a long way. Um, you know, the the visual effects and the and the visual style. You know, you you mentioned um, the uh, uh, the German, you know, shadowy impressionist uh, influence on the on the cinematography and everything. And I just feel like that's, that's the thing that really ages well uh, for me with this movie is that it just on spec, like, like you said, take any frame from this film and right. from a cinematography, from a visual effects, from a set uh, decoration standpoint, it just nothing 
looks like this movie, but man, have people tried over and over. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and it it has every reason to be dated because some of the mu- some of the music is slightly dated. Uh, but the, I. The, I gotta, I gotta stand pretty hard for Vangelis on this. Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not, um, I'm not saying don't. I actually agree with Will. Yeah. I think it held up pretty too. well. Um, I'm not saying. I mean, dated scene, doesn't mean that it doesn't hold up. Sure but does. I'm, the scene I'm in Deckard's apartment when when she's holding, when she's looking at the photograph, and then the and there's there's the the synth sort of kind of drone happening, and then that smooth alto sax just slides <laughs> right in underneath. Um, it's it's just so it's so good. <laughs> okay, well, you just said synth and smooth alto sax, and if that doesn't say That's 1982, right, I don't know what does. Yeah, I believe oh, it says 2019. Yeah. <laughs> right, <laughs> November 2019. Uh, this this movie came out the year after Vangelis won um, best original score for for, for Church of Fire, Fire. Yeah, which. Yeah. Every every single inspirational thing ever after that tried to copy him, so that's become timeless because it was so over the top. Yeah, I, yeah. Uh, but I was going to say I like what you said, Will, uh, about you know, movies being a puzzle versus a dream, uh, because as Nick knows and anyone who's listened to this podcast knows, I like puzzles both in real life and in my movies. Like I like it to all fit together and me to piece it together. Uh, and movies that are dreams are sometimes sure. hard for me because like, it doesn't work. Uh, and this like movie seems more like a puzzle movie, like except like right, it's called the first neo noir, right? Uh, like a and like Chinatown, right? It has a story, you figure it out, and yeah, then it ends. You know, it ends with uh, Nicholson not being able to do anything, uh, but like the story all made sense. Whereas this, you know, you just have to let it go because as you we said before. Deckard really doesn't figure anything out. He doesn't accomplish anything, and he only gets spared by Roy Batty. And the like, he doesn't even like he doesn't even try to take down the main bag. There is no bad guy to take down, you know. Uh, and I think I did. Oh, you mean in terms? You mean Tyrell? Yeah, Tyrell doesn't pay for anything. Like nothing. You know, he doesn't even. Well, he does with his life. I wouldn't. I'd rather go. Yeah. I don't want to go like he does. <laughs> I guess that's true. Yeah, that's, but he that got killed like, by his like creation. On, on balance, if I could go a different way, I probably wouldn't choose that. <laughs> Right. I don't know. I felt like he even almost enjoyed. But I think like, you're right. It doesn't. Nothing. Uh-huh. If I can, if I can intuit what you're saying there, Ben, nothing will change the day after Blade Runner. No, and that's but that's you also know, the, what you. It, that's also Chinatown, but like, right? But he doesn't even try. Like, we don't even find out some nefarious plot. There is no nefarious plot. The world just is crappy, right? Like, it's just, right? Yeah. Like there is no plot. That we don't uncover anything, uh, literally, because he doesn't even figure out if he is an android or not. Uh, and it's you just gotta say that's okay. <laughs> like, uh, and once you kind of get in that mood, like I did really, really enjoy it this time. Whereas I saw it for the first time in high school, and I really was pretty bored. And I just remember the unicorn scene, <laughs> the unicorn dream. Uh, and again, I don't even know if, like, the unicorn at the end, like that's the that was like the big change from the original theatrical version uh like and that's kind of the big thing that really is the tip off of yeah does you know, is he replicant because gaff can see his dreams you know uh hmm but again, what you know, was the original ending it's like a voiceover right and will maybe you can correct me. i think it's a voiceover of and i think it's him and sean young driving away and he says even something about and that four-year limit like we found a way around that or something like that uh yeah, it's the, the 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 original theatrical cut does have those those voiceovers as well as yes, their their happy ending. The the unhappy ending um, is the one in the final cut where they simply leave his apartment and it, it ends with the the elevator door closing. Yeah. Um, and then yeah, there's no unicorn dream and there's no you don't get to see um, Roy put his uh, thumbs into Tyrell's eyeballs oh. among <laughs> other things. Got to have it. Well, then let's talk about that very last scene. Yeah. You know, because that is the only really Harrison Ford moment, that sort of half smile uh, of recognition when he he picks up that origami. And I think, again, it's a big, uh, lots of props to Edward James almost, uh, you know, for making that scene, even though he's not in it. 
Uh, yeah. Uh, but he is in such a small amount of screen time. Uh, Justice Mendoza brings the heat enough that he can weigh on that uh, on Deckard's realization uh, just through a little bit of um, recorded voiceover. Uh, and yeah, but what does it mean? Do we? Where's our consensus? Is Deckard a a replicant in this Final Cut 2007 version? Yeah, I mean, I'd say yes, uh, but I actually, but I'm very much with uh, uh, with Will that it doesn't really matter. <laughs> uh, and well, I know I, that's, I'm the king of the I know it you can't really believe matter. I'm, I I can't, you can't believe wondering. I'm saying that. Uh, but I guess right. if, if you know, if you had a Blade Runner's gun to my head, I'd say yes. Or whatever they call their guns, or whatever they do, uh, I would say yes. He's a replicant, uh, just like at the end of Inception. I would say he has a happy life. It's not still a dream, uh, but ah, okay. I can, I mean, I think I agree, but it doesn't really matter. But I also think it's super. It's still very subtle, like including. You know, I mean, those, oh yeah. Those other again, Sixth Sense obviously is not subtle. Even Inception is not trying to be subtle about you know, which do you think it's going to be. Like, like you have to kind of think. Wait, why does the unicorn? Why does the unicorn? What does it mean? Like, oh, well, it could right. mean that he sees his dream, so he knows he like, and that's what he's showing that he made the unicorn, so he knows that's a fake dream, and he's a replicate. But like, you'd have to like. I feel like audiences seeing this in the '80s without the internet to talk about these things, like, to, like it really would have. Like, I think honestly, having the internet now to tell the theories, like you don't get to think about it in your head for as long. Uh, or even us in the 90s when we were watching this and being like, oh, like you get to think about it, which is cool. And it is very subtle, and I even think the the replaying of almost his line is overdoing it. Yes. It was just two minutes ago. Right, we just heard it, yeah. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. I think I think Gaff's, um, you know, sort of uh, 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 angelic, echoey voice there is just, it's kind of putting a hat on a hat. Um, the, the, the presence of the origami there is, is enough to, to underline the point, um, which is, you know, which like you guys are saying is that it, I, I don't think it matters either. I think, um, Deckard's identity is really only important to, I don't even think it's even that important to himself. I, I think it's more important to people watching the movie, trying to find their footing within the movie, um, and him, you know, leaving the apartment with Rachel off to a, uh, you know, to an unknown future is, I think it's it's totally in line with that, with the uh, with the enigmatic enigmatic nature of of the film and its, you know, message or lack thereof. I guess you could say. Interesting. Well, you could say the message to me is is kind of what and what Roy tells him, right? And Roy lets him live when he easily could have killed him. Uh, of saying, you know, like, what does it mean to be human? Like, why am I not as human as you? You know, like, is human, is being human just being kind? You know, it's like trying to figure out what is human, so who cares, particularly in this universe where the only way to tell if you're human is to take a test. There really, there's no blood test for this. But still, like, right, the whole point is, like, if you think you're human, then you're human, right? Uh, and you can act human or you can act inhuman, right? Uh, which is what's cool about it, I think. Except the replicants are stronger. <laughs> yeah, they're 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 designed to do certain tasks. So like baddies, um, you know, the the Nexus Six version of that that baddie is is he was a, um, uh, it's like a he's a, a soldier, right? He's a you know stronger and faster, but um, you know due to that nature, that's that's why the the, the four year lifespan is programmed into them. And, right. You know when we when we meet him, um, because his incept date is January. 2016 you know he's coming up on his uh his expiration date and that's why he's right. acting out the way that he is interesting well anyway it's a i mean it, it's an undeniably compelling movie um and uh, you know it, it sure beats the last starfighter in terms of uh, science fiction movies from that era ben have you ever seen the hunger no it's a, a film uh, directed um, the year after Blade Runner um, came out uh, by Ridley Scott's Tony brother, Scott. Tony Scott. Yeah. Um, and it's uh, it's sort of an erotic horror thriller um, starring Catherine Deneuve and David Bowie. 
and it rules. It's about vampires, uh -huh. and I um, I d saw it for the first time two Halloweens ago, and was really struck by its. Um, it really has a shared like visual style with um, with Blade Runner, not so much in the art direction, but just in the um, you know just like layers of smoke and neon and silhouettes and people, you know, holding cigarettes and really red like deeply red lipstick. Um, it's a cool movie. You should check it out. I just wanted to bring that up before we ended. <laughs> well, it's interesting. We're going to talk about Catherine Deneuve. I know. Um, I was like, I wouldn't know who that was right. until the next movie we saw. Uh, yeah, my only thing is. Oh, uh, uh, what was the what? Which one did you watch? Uh, the Umbrellas of Cherbourg. Oh, excellent. Okay. Hey, good movie. You know that, and then you got that right. Okay. <laughs> uh, let's start with any last thoughts, Will. Last thoughts by me? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, let, you know, like I said, this this is probably my favorite movie. Um, I don't think it's it's the greatest movie. Um, it's but it's it's definitely the movie that I have seen the most that doesn't have the words Star Wars in it in its title. Um, it's it is definitely um, a dream like uh, movie for me. Um, it was also kind of an activator in a lot of different directions, both in terms of, you know, the types of science fiction that I look for, the types of, um, you know, like stylistic, um, impressionistic filmmaking that I, I appreciate. Um, it's, I don't, I don't appreciate it to the exclusion of all other, you know, stylistic um, values or anything. But it's, you know, when when something that is this visually striking pops up, it's it's hard for me to. Um, to look away from it, even if it does have, you know, narrative shortcomings. And I, and I would agree that there are certain narrative shortcomings with this movie, but for me, it just doesn't, it just doesn't really matter. Um, it just, everything about it is so uh, up my alley. And it also is based on a novel that totally rules by a, a, a novelist who totally rules. And, um, you know, I don't know if you guys do this on this podcast, but I, I highly recommend this movie. Um, it's, there's there's just kind of nothing like it um and i also highly recommend the the sequel as well it's it's a much different much more um languid um take on on similar themes um set 30 years later um and it similarly rules <laughs> cool yeah I, I i actually i actually yeah i, I actually purposely didn't watch this the new one with ryan gosling and harrison ford just because i wanted to watch this like and i think i will watch the newer one uh after we've now recorded this but <laughs> it's good and i concur it's definitely one of the right movies do you agree ben yeah definitely one of the right movies that's what we've been doing will saying is it the right movie or the wrong movie it sounds like you, you're on the right side uh i had two little tidbits 100%. two little tidbits that i kind of wanted to make sure we got in uh one was yeah it's, it's famously based on the two androids dream of electric sheep as we mentioned by philip k dick uh, obviously it sounds like you're a big fan, Will, so am I probably the best sci-fi writer, at least to me. Uh, but the the title is from a different sci-fi book called The Blade Runner, and because really Scott just thought it was a really cool name, and he's right. I mean, Blade Runner is a freaking awesome name. Because <laughs> uh, there's, no, there's no yeah. reason. That doesn't surprise me because it has nothing it to has do. Nothing it to doesn't do. explain <laughs> what no he does. These guys should be called Blade Runners, but it's cool. Uh, and then... Except I, that it rips... <laughs> yeah, uh, and then I wanted to say uh, we didn't mention all the visuals like the, the final scene and we see there's this building called the Bradbury building right this is its most famous scene in a movie but it's in yep. lots of movies it shows it's it showed up in noirs in the you know before Blade Runner and this is kind of its most famous scene of course they trash it up but it's got this you know the awesome gate elevator uh, and it's just cool because they even work in the name you know the Bradbury which is supposed to make you think of Ray Bradbury the sci-fi writer even though it's not at all right. the the building's name for exactly uh, but it's that's pretty i just thought that's totally. a super cool yep. touch <laughs> uh, every time i watch the the this, this movie and that scene happens where, where deckard is is kind of jogging past the bradbury i always go oh the bradbury yeah <laughs> uh, yeah and i've uh i when i lived in la i definitely went there because i wanted to see <laughs> the bradbury building uh, it's up there with nakatomi plaza uh, <laughs> all right so nick our top five is top five Harrison Ford movies, which is probably our most uh, 
our most uh, populous top five we've done. Uh, but I'd like to hear I was gonna say, your top five. Not, not since the not since the Minority play. Report episode has there been such a, uh, yeah, right. such, a such a populist top five. Mm-hmm. Um, well, just because it's popular doesn't mean it's not one of the right movies. You do have to, and I and Certainly I don't not. know how. So, hey, no one's saying that. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, th- I I added some strictures here because I'm I've got five movies, Harrison Ford movies, uh, but. There are, are a couple conspicuously not on this list that I don't think he's in enough to call a Harrison Ford movie. So you won't see American Graffiti on this list, and you won't see Apocalypse Now on this list, even though it's better than... Both of those movies are better than some of the movies on this list. Some, not all. I don't think the top three would be changed, which is more of a, a statement of how many good movies uh, Harrison Ford has been in. At number five is yeah. The Fugitive. Uh, the Fugitive is... Oh, I am, I am shocked that's only your number five. Because as you know, it's one of my favorite. If, if Blade Runner is your, Will, uh, warm bath movie, The Fugitive is my warm bath movie. Uh, I cannot not watch it if it's on TV, which is sort of a 10-year a, a type thing now. I have, uh, you know, because who watches TV in that way anymore? But uh, I know every beat by heart. Uh, I think on my my epitaph should read when I came home there was a man in my house. Uh, I just <laughs> everything about it is just great. It's a, he it had is, a prosthetic arm. He had a mechanical <laughs> arm. I fought with this man. You find this man. All right. So you he made took me do everything from me. <laughs> everything. Are you suggesting? Nick, okay. Look, anyway. We're gonna get through this podcast without this happening. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> It's a anyway. He, it's just a, that is, and also I think is legitimately a very great movie, a, 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 yeah. a action movie that doesn't get a smart adult, um, practical action movie that doesn't get made enough anymore. And so there, it's at number five. Number four is Blade Runner, which we've uh, obviously talked about. Um, number three is Star Wars. Uh, which has been talked about enough. And uh, number two, Raiders of the Lost Ark, which we've also brought in um, as, in this discussion. And The Empire Strikes Back is the number one Harrison Ford movie. And he's actually more of a part of that than he is in Star Wars. So uh, I don't have any problem putting that number one. What do you think, Will? I mean, I, I too uh, love... Um, the Fugitive. That that is one of those movies. Um, that was that was a uh, Saturday afternoon um, dad rental um, that my mom didn't want me to see because it depicted um, there were there were frank scenes of domestic violence in it, sure. um, and uh, she just didn't want me to see that when I was nine. But that you know that that movie is a rip snorting action movie. That's also it's it's also got a great mystery. Um, it's also a great um, catch the fugitive movie. Uh, you know, pun not attended. Um, but I mean, Tommy Lee Jones is is great. You know, for, like pound for pound, um, one of the one just one of the guys for me. Uh, I, I love that guy whenever he turns up. Um, Nick, you mentioned watching the first Captain America the other day, and um, you know, oh. in that movie, uh, Tommy Lee Jones plays Colonel Tommy Lee Jones, and he's great. <laughs> he's he's always he's always great, even when the movie around him is a total shrug. True. Um, I've not seen, you know, and, what is it, Man of the House with all the cheerleaders, but I'm sure he's good in that. You know, and, and I <laughs> bet that his that. his disdain for being in that movie just makes his grumpy character all the more relatable and believable. <laughs> Correct. I did see that movie. <laughs> but yeah, Nick, I think, I think your Nick is pretty unimpeachable. Um, I, I will give a shout out to um, both uh, his Jack Ryan pictures, Patriot Games yeah. and Claire in Present Danger. Um, because those are just, you know, I mean, they're, they're, they're clancy novels come to life. Um, and you know, I mean, take that with however much salt you need to, but they're incredibly watchable. Um, and Even then Air Force uh, one the other one is silly, but is, is he holds it together. Absolutely. And, and, you know, and you've got, um, uh, uh, uh Edward James, or not Edward James Wallace, but, uh, James Earl Jones is the, he's like the chairman of the joint chiefs of staff or whatever and there are multiple you know scenes of them pointing their index fingers very sternly at one another and and, and conversing uh very sternly and um you know what's what's not to love about that what's well, not 
Um, and then just and then another shout out from from me to Air Force One, um, one of the <laughs> dumbest movies ever made. Um, but I just I I have to I have to stand for it um, because it is so brazenly stupid. It's true, but he but he makes it. I mean, again, he adds a gravity to it that would float away with another actor and I'm not sure to sometimes that's kind of fun but uh, I think he grounds it in a way that uh, makes it almost work despite just how insultingly dumb it is <laughs> yeah the scene the scene where he's where, where Gary Oldman has the has the pistol on his wife and daughter and he's begging for their lives and he's you know crying and you know choking up trying to um, you know get him to not it's it's a it's a it's a boilerplate scene that is effective solely based on his performance it's a it's a great performance all right (laughs) all right well with that i'm gonna have to end this uh podcast by saying get off my plane uh thank you for joining us will thank Uh, you this was great uh you are our very first our very first uh guest host on watch the right moves of the rukowski brothers uh really having you Uh, first friend first guest (laughs) thank you yeah i win (laughs) thank you everyone for listening uh and if you have any comments about your favorite harrison ford movie uh or anything else you can email us at watching the right movies at gmail.com if you want will to replace me uh don't email that there uh yeah i'm not i'm not gonna edit this stuff together uh, let's be honest (laughs) (laughs) yeah all right thanks everybody bye everyone thank you I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend. And like that, he's gone.